Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they beat the people so that many of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is beaten and when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole and if a serpent beat anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Particularly, I am aware that most of you have read that text and perhaps had it preached. saying that particularly on a pulpit, we do not have much in the way of novelty. We don't have new things to tell you. It's the same old cross, the same old Christ that we preach. And so, and I pray that it would be the same here on this pulpit, that there are no new inventions. The saving message is the same, and it's the same over and over again. And the chief task of those who stand here, and those who preach in all places, is to constantly point people from every text of scripture to Christ. Christ, who is the only one that can save. So, 
this text of ours today we'll be looking at some form of symbolism presented for us in the Old Testament, but reflects in the New Testament. And so in, in, in John's gospel, John labors to point the readers to see how Christ is deeply rooted in what they already know, namely the Old Testament. So he begins in the first chapter by saying that Christ is the light of men or the light of the world in reference to creation, that Christ was there. It is by whom all things were made and for him as well. And he goes on to declare that Christ is the Lamb of God to save sinners in reference to Abraham. And so he's, he's reminding the people that God promised to provide a lamb for their sins. And, Christ, and God has done so in the person of Christ. So therefore, Christ is the Lamb of God. In the same chapter, we see him talk about the ladder of Jacob while speaking to the Nathaniel in John chapter 1. In reference to him being the son of man that has come down for the salvation of men. And so when you get to the third chapter, we see him refer to Moses' serpent and says, likewise, Christ will be lifted that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so today we'll be considering this great symbol of a saving serpent. And we'll be looking at particularly three things. The first one is what is the disease that ails God's people? The second is what is the end of this disease that ails God's people? And lastly, what is the remedy of the disease that ails God's people? There are many things that are happening before the text we have just read in Numbers 21. And this story begins many, many chapters before this one. We may not have the time to go through all that story. But in this particular portion of text you've read, the nation of Israel has been denied passage by the Edomites. And so they sought to find another road by going around the cities of Edom. And so they set their way, the scripture records, that they set their way from Mount Hor to the way of the Red Sea. So they turned back to find a way to go around. And we are told in that reality that they are seeing the promised land farther than they had hoped, God's people became impatient. And their hearts were caught in a rebellion and sin against God. Now, consider the state of their hearts. That first and foremost, they despised God and the way that he had appointed for them.
they murmured to Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? The nation of Israel, in their sinful and rebellious heart, they have forgotten too quickly how they cried to the Lord for deliverance. They have forgotten too easily the oppression that they suffered under in the hands of Pharaoh. <coughs> in, the, in the book of Exodus, chapter 2, verse 23, you will see the record of scripture that Israel cried to the Lord to be set free from this burdensome master. They cried. They sought the Lord that he would be merciful to them. And the Lord sent Moses to come, to, the, to come and deliver them. And they have been set out from the land of Egypt, and God has set them on a way towards a land of promise. But on that land, they forget so easily. And they say to Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? Why did you deliver us? God's people, consider the true state of the sinner's heart. That the sinner may one day cry over their sinful state, but they still yet love it. Because they are enslaved. They are enslaved by it. They are caught up in it. That there were, there were people in the camp of Israel that while they were free in the physical form, they did not have chains tied to them. Their hearts were yet bound to their former master. And they longed to be taken captive yet again. That the sinner is a slave to their passions and their corruptions. They are tied to it by unseen fetters. That the more their indulgence, the farmer, the grip of the chains, that is the true state of the sinner's heart. If any of you is away from Christ this day, you're not a free man. You are a slave to your sins. In this camp, there were two kinds of people as there are here today. The likes of Caleb and Joshua, who God had opened their eyes to fear him and to see his great deliverance at work, even in the difficulties of the wilderness. But there were still yet those whose hearts were bound in the blindness of sin and rebellion. And so, likewise, some of you here, well-learned, sophisticated in speech, you dress nicely, outwardly, but you are certainly a slave of sin. It's not a willful, free service. It's a binding. It's an imprisonment. It's a truly helpless state. 
that even when the Lord, even when there is some work to bring you to some, to consider another road, you still desire the very same thing. So we see men held captive by sin. But secondly, Israel despised God's good things. The scripture says, For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, or this worthless bread. Or consider how Israel speaks contemptuously about the manna that God has provided. And they call it worthless food. And they forget how they cry to the Lord that he might have mercy on them and provide food. The sinner's heart, dear friends, is an insatiable hole, it's an insatiable vacuum that last cannot be satisfied. So the fornicator hopes from one bed to another. The belly of the greedy can never be filled. The liar devises even more lies. And those who steal, steal all the more. It's the nature of sin. That when the heart of man is gripped by sin, it cannot be satisfied. cannot be satisfied. There's no satisfaction to it. And so one will run to philosophy, and I tell you, here in this university, you will find so many of them. Philosophies. They will tell you one thing or another, and you become learned in them. Others will talk about their traditions, and they will seek so deep in them as though they are superior than others. And they will still not be satisfied, and they will turn to speculations without end. Because of the nature of the sinner's heart, there is nothing, nothing of knowledge, nothing of material possession that can satisfy it. It is always demanding something deeper, something shinier, something more profound, something more liberal, but it cannot find rest upon God's word. That's the nature of the sinner's heart. When God's word is laid before it, it says this worthless food. And third, the disease that ails God's people is that Israel is invaded by snakes, fiery serpents. Israel has been wandering through the wilderness for close to 40 years now. Now, in the wilderness, it's not a unique thing to have serpents. And for all this time, the Lord has exercised restraint against the serpents, that they may not come near his people. But because of sin and the rebellion of his people to despise his ways and his, and his provisions, he withdraws this restraint. And so we are told that spiry serpents came and, by, and, and, and bit them. And they were 
the description of fiery suggests that this, the sting of these snakes was, was like a, a burning fire. You know, when you have, you feel like you have fire in your veins. The death was painful. Picture a man wailing and in contortions and wreathing with fire in his veins, moving to his muscles, moving to the very nerves. Because a poison has been introduced into their body. And they are staring straight into death. And we are told that many in their midst died. So, this is the state of the sinner's heart. It is held captive, and such is yours. It is insatiable. It cannot be satisfied. And it is held by a poison to the soul. And you do not enlist to this state. It is because you are born that way. No one is ever taught how to sin. There is no father who sits down his son and tells him, my dear son, when you want to lie, you must look at the person straight in the eyes. And you must not blink. Perhaps there are, but it is it's not common, right? Yet, all of you here have told a lie at one point of your life. Where did you learn it from? Without blinking. That you have picked someone's thing. Where did you learn it? It is because at your very conception, sin was your inheritance. That the generation of mankind is born sinful. And therefore, this disease of sin that holds your heart captive and insatiable, this poison that sits at your soul is yours by nature and by a progressive practice. That while you are born in sin, you prove your place by living it out. You know very well the state of your heart, the nature of malice and greed and lust that sits there. You know very well the kind of person you are when no one is watching. And though we may sit here and say good things about your life, you know very well the kind of person you are. The lust and the passions that rage within your heart. Secondly, what is the end of this disease? You who are hearing me today, sin is not benign. Sin is not harmless. Sin is not harmless. There is no such a thing as a harmless sin. Whether it is in the heart or done at the rooftop. There is no such a thing as a harmless sin. John Banyan writes to his soul and says that nothing can hurt you except sin. Nothing can grieve me except sin. Nothing can defeat you except sin. Therefore, be on your God, God my man's soul. My hearers today, sin wastes away people. 
It eats the flesh. It makes the bones sick. It makes the mind futile. It reduces you to just but a loaf of, of bread. It makes your eyes blind. Sin is the worst of all sicknesses. And sin is your greatest enemy on this life. I assure you that the world may romanticize sin and evil. It may say some good things about it. Even might sing songs for it. But make no mistake, there is no such a thing as a harmless sin. Whether it may be a lie or slander or gossip or lust or greed, whether it may be cheating or fornication, whatever it is that is against God's holy law, is not harmless. Sin brings an end to nations. It breaks churches. Sin wipes away a whole generation. Sin dims the future and the hope of many. Sin is truly like a cancer that eats away. Now some sinners in your midst may look like, as though they are prosperous. But do not forget the warning of Psalm 73. That, <clears throat> that the Lord has set their feet on a slippery road. For now, the, the destruction of sin for you may not be as clear and apparent as it was in the camp of Israel when they saw their friends fall dead by the poisonous snakes. But rest assured, though you do not see it now, the death that is being caused by your drunkenness and your gambling and your cheating and your fornication, death lurks in the, in the corner of sin's alley. Soon it will confound you. Those who walk on that road will meet death. The scripture is clear that the wages of sin is death. There is no lie about it. There is no middle ground about it. When you meet with, when you walk on the road of sin, death awaits you around the corner. Jesus tells a parable of a rich fool who said to his heart, Now, my heart, rest, eat, and drink, and make merry, for all is well with you. And Christ says, and it was said of him from heaven, You fool. You fool. And for one of the periods of life that can be very pompous is campus life. That for a long time, you feel you are on top of the earth. And therefore, it's a season of indulgence. But if you lie to yourself that it is only seen for a season, it is only seen for a while, heaven looks at you and says, you fool, you fool. 
I assure you that soon will bring to you a certain and sure death. Sin is on a mission against which it cannot be dissuaded. And you cannot cheat it. That it will deliver your soul from one misery to another and ultimately to the flames of hell. Sin hands the soul to damnation. Consider the horror of this text we have read of Numbers 21. A people gathered seeing their own kinsmen die in agony and pain by the bites of fiery snakes. The stench of death fills the camp. And these people are not unaware of what their problem is. They say, we have sinned against God. Charles Spurgeon says, Now, my brethren, we cannot say that sin instantly produces such effects as is upon the men who are subjects of it. But we do affirm that let sin alone, that it will develop itself in miseries far more ex extreme than ever, ever the bite of the serpent could have caused. It is true, the young man who quaffs the poison cup of intoxication, what's not that there is a serpent there? For there is no serpent except in the dregs thereof. It is sure that the woman who boasts herself of her riches and arrays herself right godly in her pride thinks that there is no serpent that binds the son of our waist. For there is no serpent there as she knows it. But she will know it when the days of her, fri of her frivolity are ended. It is true, he that casteth God knows not the viper that has infused the poison which he speaks against, against his maker. But he shall know it in the days to come. Look, you that are blotted drunkard, see him. See him after years of intoxication have defaced all that was manlike in him. As he totters to his grave, a poor, feeble creatures, the pillars of his house are shaken. His strength has failed him. And that which God had meant to be his own image has become the image of misery incarnate. The road to sin surely reads to horrors that cannot be described. It may look as though this destruction that I speak of today is not yet coming to you. After all, you have made it to the university. After all, you are doing very well where you are. But remember the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The scripture says that they were buying and selling on the day the wrath of God descended upon them. All the people that were in the generation of Noah, they were eating and drinking as it's recorded in scripture in Luke 17. They were making merry when the day of the rain pounded. When sin has run its full course, there are certainly no words to describe its horror. Today, it may look like just a small thing, but I assure you that your sin, oh, your sinful heart, is a poison to you. 
and ultimately its final end is certain death and damnation. So, lastly, what is your remedy? What is your hope in this? And God commanded that a bronze snake be made and lifted up, that all those beaten might raise their bloodshot eyes to the serpent and live. And in a like manner, our Savior, Jesus Christ, has been lifted up on a cross. My friends, there is only one remedy. There is only one escape from death and the dreary end of sin, Jesus Christ. There in the camp of Israel, because look and imagine a man breathing in pain, having been bitten by a snake, sweating with high fever, rolling and moaning, looking at death. And suddenly he lifts his eyes and sees that serpent lifted high and behold life. So likewise, Christ has been nailed on a cross for you and for your sin, that whoever believes in him may have life and life in abundance. On the camp of sin, there is nothing but death. But oh, at Calvary's cross, there is nothing but certain life. Some of you may think, oh, what folly that this man has come to speak here all the way from wherever he has come on a first Sunday of the semester. And it is true that what an odious thing a bronze snake is. It's just an object. If you, if you take it and broke it into pieces, you don't sell it for much. It's, a, it's an inanimate thing. It is backed by no science. It is crude, to, so to speak. It just... It has no appeal to the memory or to the eyes. There is nothing appealing to it. And likewise is the cross of our Savior. Oh, there is nothing of it that is so grand to draw you to it. It is not an emblem of riches. It is not a flag that has conquered many wars. It is not an ancient relic that is worth many things. It's just a wooden cross. And many of you will look at it and say, oh, what a simplistic thing this is. That this man will tell us how dangerous our sin is, yet say it's simply sorted by the cross of Christ. And I grant it to you, it is true that the cross may look simple and simplistic. The scripture records that even the man that hung on that cross was no prince. We are told that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. There was no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We considered him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. There is nothing to look here. 
It's not beauty. We are not calling you to a pompous party to come and witness a majestic athlete or hero, a man that has conquered many wars. No, this, has, this person has no form or majesty. It is one as whom men hide their faces. But when you look intently at this cross, you will see and marvel at the justice of God satisfied on your behalf. How a sinless man has died for your sake. Consider this cross and see how grand a transaction it is. How beautiful it is. Oh, dear friends, take some time and think about Calvary. Think about the agonies of your Savior that you may be delivered. hymn writer called George Bernard, he has written a hymn called The Old Rugged Cross. And he says that, oh, that rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. <clears throat> but then he would turn and say, that cross, despised by the world, has a wondrous affection for me. That there, the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear that cross and that cross stained it with blood. A wondrous beauty. For it was on that old rugged cross that Jesus suffered and died that you may be pardoned and sanctified. There, your Savior bled to death he, he took a death that was yours. There, a sinless man died that you, sinners, set and marked for death, may not die, but instead may have eternal life. Oh, may God be gracious to you this morning and open your eyes that you may see with clarity the beauty of Calvary, the beauty of the cross, that though it may look simplistic and repulsive, you may see that divine and great exchange, that there Christ surely bore your griefs and he carried your sorrows, that there he was pierced for your transgressions, he was crushed for your iniquities, that there upon him the chastisement that brings you peace was laid, that there he was wounded that you may be healed. And some of you would say, how great your sin is. But this is the scandal of Calvary, that the vilest of offenders, the greatest of sinners, there at Calvary find hope. And do not teach yourself there's another way to attract the smile of God. There is no other way to out of your hopeless misery. There is no other way out of your clutches of sin. There is no other way from your insatiable, sinful heart. There is no other way. It is only in Christ Jesus. How foolish would it be of you to seek the smile of God elsewhere? For even the greatest of the works of sinners are but filthy lads before our Lord. Except that you look to him in faith that he would be merciful, that he would grant you life. 
There are some among us to you that have truly set their hope on Christ. And you too this morning consider yet again the beauty of Calvary. For you, dear believer, seated here listening to me, be reminded of the beauty of Calvary. See the man that you formerly were and see how Christ paid the great price for your ransom. That he looked upon you with such great mercy and descended from heaven that he would die on that wooden pole for the sake of you. Christ has twice been lifted for you, dear saint. First on Calvary's cross for your justification. That there a fountain flows that cleanses you, that sets you apart, that enjoins you to the family of God, that makes you dearly God's beloved. That there your sin and shame has been born. Oh, dear saint, consider yet again in the words of this hymn that when Christ tempts me to despair, and when, 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 when sin tempts me to despair, and tells me the, of the guilt within. Upward I look and see. And I see him there. Who made an end to all my sin. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is just satisfied. And to look on him I find pardon. Dear believer, that cross, old, rugged as it may appear, has been for you the greatest of things in this life. It is only on account of that cross that you may draw near to your Lord. Lest you would have remained without hope, blind and lost. But Christ has also been lifted for you to glory. Christ has been lifted for you to glory, dear saint. That there in heaven, Christ sits, making for you intercession. As the same way that sin is on a mission to, 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 to damn and destroy, that sin will send a man to hell certainly. Christ in his work of salvation saves to the uttermost. He does not save halfway. The work of Christ on Calvary is followed and by an exalted, powerful hand of providence that holds the believer firmly and steadily and such an unfailing intercession that is made for you continually before your God, that your faith may not fail. Oh, consider Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, that your life is hidden with Christ in glory. Dear believer, Christ has been exalted in glory for you, and there where he is, your life is safe with him. It is safe. It is safe with him by such a powerful upholding that when Christ will be revealed, you shall be with him in glory. That is the hope of Calvary, that there is no such a thing as a half-baked salvation. It is that those that Christ saves, save suddenly. And therefore you have nothing to fear. For before the throne of God, you have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for you. And your name is graven on his hands, and your name is written on his heart, and you know 
that well in his, in his heaven and he stands there making intercession for you. There is no tongue that can beat you away from your father. Oh, such a beautiful thing it is that Christ has only been lifted for you on that cross of Calvary that you may be justified but he has been enthroned that there he, he, may, he may uphold you by such a sovereign hand with such a beautiful comforting hand that in the day of misery you can look up to him you can look up to him and he is quick to answer. Let's pray for